Welcome. This is the weekly Sunday sermon from Rancho Baptist Church in Temecula, California. You can find us at ranchobaptistchurch.org. This week's message by Pastor Jason Swanson, You Must Believe, Part 2. The original date of this message was the 20th of November, 2022. Well, welcome once again to Rancho Baptist Church. I am Pastor Jason, the senior pastor here. Thank you for joining us this morning. I'm excited about where we're going, but I must inform you that where we're going is not what it looks like on your sermon notes. So just mark all that off except for your points to ponder. Your points to ponder are the only thing that actually is accurate. I'm going to do something different here. The Lord has laid this upon my heart because I needed this. And I just needed some encouragement, and I'm trusting that you need some encouragement this morning as well. This coming up Thursday, many of us, if not most of us, will will gather together with our families, with our friends to, to celebrate Thanksgiving. We'll enjoy a wonderful meal with one another. In fact, we're going to start this tonight. For those of you who still haven't signed up, it's not too late. You can still come and join us this evening, and we will do similar to what what we've done around our family table for for many, many, many years. Just give thanksgiving to the Lord. Thank him for what he's done. And if you haven't yet, there's cool little cutouts that you can, they look like little leaves. You can write that, whatever you're thankful for, and post them out there. You can bring those back with you tonight. And if you want to read those, you can read it verbatim or you can share something else with us. But where some of where I'm going this morning goes is over the fact that I've just been asking myself, Jason, what are you truly thankful for? And my normal response is, well, I'm thankful for family. I'm I'm thankful for health. I'm thankful for Jesus and and. Generally around our family, those are the three answers that you get as, as we go around the table and, and share thanksgiving, God's grace to us poured out over the last year. But what has been interesting for me is where we're going to go this morning is not something that is usually mentioned. It's not something that comes to the forefront of my mind, even though it's, it's, it's included in the responsible Jesus. But what we're going to see today is is something very specific about our God that that I wonder. Perhaps you haven't thought about. And that maybe what you need this morning is this encouragement. This encouragement from God's word on how good our God is to us. And how wonderful his ways are. And I'm going to start off a little differently this week. Instead of going to John chapter 3, which we will get to, I want us to begin in Jonah. And I want us to start back. I want us to start back with uh, one of the most well-known missionaries, mostly well-known because of what he didn't do, and then what God did, and finally what he did, but then how he complains about what he ends up doing, knowing that God's going to do what he's going to do and the way he responds. 
If you followed any of that, thank you. Basically, God extends so much grace to Jonah. And I wonder if some of us might be a little bit like Jonah this morning. Here's a weird question, but do you ever believe that God is too loving? Jonah did. I think at times we can look at what's happening around our world, around our country, around our state. And and, and we wonder, God, what are you thinking? Are you going to step in? Are you going to do something? Are you going to keep pouring forth more and more of your grace, your compassion, your mercy, and your love? That's the struggle that Jonah had. Let's begin in Jonah chapter 3, verse 5. Then the people of Nineveh believed in God. There is a whole lot more to this story that unfolds before we get to Jonah chapter 3, verse 5, right? You see, God comes to Jonah and he says, hey, I want you to go to Nineveh and I want you to tell them that destruction is coming. My destruction is coming. And yet, rather than listening to what the Lord tells him to do and walking in swift obedience, Jonah actually does the complete opposite. And he runs as far away from where God is leading him as he can go. And then he hides out in a ship. And then we know what happens. A great big storm comes. And everybody on the ship knows what's happening, that they're about to die, except for Jonah. They wake him up. They figure out that he is the one to blame. Jonah understands this, and he tells them, throw me overboard. They say no. He finally convinces them, and they throw him overboard, and everything gets calm, and the Lord provides this great big fish to come and swallow Jonah up. And Jonah would seem to be quite repentant when he's in that fish. And God in his grace brings him to Nineveh and spits him out and, go to, and Jonah does what God calls him to do. He goes to Nineveh and he proclaims that, that the destruction of God is coming. And then we pick it up in verse 5. Then the people of Nineveh believed in God. We have to understand the Ninevites are part of like the Assyrian Empire. These are bad guys. Mean. Known for being ruthless. And they called a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. This is like a a national time of repentance. And when the word reached the king of Nineveh, he arose from his throne, laid aside his robe from him, covered himself with sackcloth and sat on the ashes. He issued a proclamation and it said in Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let man, beast, Herd or flock taste a thing. Do not let them eat or drink water. But both man and beast must be covered with sackcloth. And let men call on God earnestly that each may turn from his wicked way and from the violence which is in his hands. Who knows, God may turn and relent and withdraw his burning anger so that we will not perish. When God saw their deeds, that they turned from their wicked way, Then God relented concerning the calamity which he had declared he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. 
And as we see, that's, that's a problem for Jonah. Chapter 4, verse 1, but it, it, it greatly displeased Jonah and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord and said, please, Lord, was this not what I said while I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for death is better to me than life. I'd rather die than to see this actually play out, God. And notice when when God responds, he doesn't respond to Jonah's plea. Verse 4, the Lord said, do you have good reason to be angry? And then Jonah went out from the city and sat east of it. There he made a shelter for himself and sat under it in the shade until he could see what would happen in the city. So Jonah doesn't respond to God, but instead he goes out and builds himself a small little place that would somehow keep him from allowing the sun to beat down upon him. And then we see God's grace in action once again. So the Lord God appointed a plant and it grew up over Jonah to be a shade over his head to deliver him from his discomfort. And Jonah was extremely happy about the plant. It would seem that that Jonah must have had sides that he built that, but for some reason didn't have any kind of top over whatever he had made. And so what does God do? God provides this plant that grows up over and puts shade over his head. But then we see what God does next in verse 7. But God appointed a worm. When dawn came the next day and it attacked the plant and it withered. And when the sun came up, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on Jonah's head so that he became faint and begged with all his soul to die, saying, death is better to me than life. All of this to give an object lesson to Jonah. Because Jonah is just like you and I. He's got a very hard heart. And he doesn't always grab the things that the Lord wants to teach him. Verse 9, then God said to Jonah, do you have good reason to be angry about the plant? Now he answers and he said, I have good reason to be angry even to death. Then the Lord said, you had compassion on the plant for which you did not work and which you did not cause to grow, which came up overnight and perished overnight. Should I not have compassion on Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know the difference between their right and left hand, as well as many animals? What was Jonah missing? He was missing the true understanding that our God is a God of compassion, mercy, and love. That he desires that none would perish, but that all would be saved. That was the whole purpose that he was wanting to use the nation of Israel for, to be his vessel to reach out and allow other nations to be saved. That is why he sent Jonah to Nineveh. But what was Jonah's thought? Jonah's thought was, oh, no, God, you, 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 you shouldn't 
be gracious to them. I kind of think you're going to be, and so you know what? I don't even want to show up. He basically was telling God how God should function. And don't we all do the same thing? And our view of God is so small at times. And it's pinned in by what our perceptions of who God is. And what we see here, oh, so clearly, even in terms of this, this, this pagan people that were known to be the worst of the worst, that God still desires that they would have a testimony of him that they might believe. Turn with me to John. Because I wonder if some of us this morning are in a place right now where you have been in the place where you have questioned whether or not God loves you. And we are going to receive an emphatic reply to that question this morning. Does God love me? Yes, he loves you. It's going to resound strongly. I believe it's the same message that we see in Jonah. That God is a God of love because he is love. So what I want to do this morning is change the the title Away from you must believe part two. We'll get back into that next week. I want us to just spend this morning thinking about a love like no other. I want to give you four reasons to be thankful for. This evening, if you don't have anything to write down, here are four reasons that you can write down to be thankful for. All pointing to God's love. First is the initiator of his love. That's what we're going to see. And we're only going to go to John 3.16 this morning. Then we're going to see the magnitude of his love. Then we're going to see the scope of his love. We'll come back to this. You don't have to write this all down now. And fourth, the demonstration of his love. As I poured into these verses throughout this week, I kept coming back to, for God so loved the world. And it was an encouragement to my soul, particularly as I haven't been feeling well this last week. And at times, circumstances drive me batty. And I was struggling, and I wanted to just find the solace in the love of God over and over and over again. And so that's what I want to do for us this morning. I believe that that is what Nicodemus was supposed to walk away with. And all of this, as to exactly when Nicodemus heard this, I don't know. This, this might have been Jesus still speaking, or this might have been John. Our kind of commentators are split. I tend to think that this is John and, and no longer Jesus. But in either case, it is the word of God. And it is meant to be an encouragement, not only to Nicodemus, but to you and I as well, as we gather this morning And as Jesus comes to Nicodemus and and he says, you must be born again. And he tells him how this happens, that this only happens through the spirit. 
And then he tells them about the gospel and how just as the serpent was lifted up in the times of Moses, so the Son of Man must be lifted up and only those who believe in him will receive eternal life. Now where does he go? Now he goes to the love of God. And he says, how is this all possible? This is all possible because of the love of God. And that's what I want us to consider this morning. So let's begin at verse 1 in chapter 3. In the Gospel of John. This encounter again with Nicodemus and Jesus. And we're going to go all the way through 21 and then we're just going to spend our time in, in verse 13. I'm sorry, verse 16. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. And this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from. And where it is going, so is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? He still didn't get it. And Jesus answered and said to him, are you the teacher of Israel and do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and testify of what we have seen, and you do not accept our testimony. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe it if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes in him, whoever whoever believes will in him have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world, to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. This is the judgment, that the light has come into the world and men loved the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. Let's pray for the the preaching of of John 3.16. Heavenly Father, we, we come to your presence this morning seeking to know you better, to understand you better to know your love that goes beyond our description, that goes beyond our understanding, that goes even beyond our imaginations. Lord, we come to what is most likely the most popular verse in in all of Scripture. 
And in this verse, we see with it this transparent simplicity and, and yet this overpowering, majestic declaration of your incredible gospel. So I pray now, Lord, that you would allow us to drink deeply from your word, that you would give us a reason to truly be thankful this morning. I pray that if any among us does not know you as their Savior, that they have not yet received eternal life, Lord, that you would allow that, bring that into being this morning, that you would open their blind eyes, their spiritually deaf ears, that you would tune them to your gospel, that they might respond in faith to you. And for those of us that know you already, Lord, may you fill us with the joy and elation of the thanksgiving that comes because not so much that we know you, but that you know us. Not that we love you, but that you loved us first. So guide our time now and allow your Holy Spirit to be our teacher and to be our guide and set me aside. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So four reasons to be thankful for this Thanksgiving. The first one is this, the initiator of his love. You and I need to be thankful for this, in particular for who this is. Notice what what we are told right from the start. Who is the initiator? Who is the beginning point? Who is the foundation for all that is explained to us in this verse? For God so loved the world. God is the initiator. God is the foundation. God is indeed the beginning point that that long before you loved him, he loved you. Do you you get that this morning? Have you considered that this morning? As you consider this time of Thanksgiving that, that some of us will enjoy tonight and we'd love you to come, as you consider spending time with your family this Thanksgiving, might you share this with your family? Of all the things that you're thankful for, you are thankful that God is the initiator of love. That it didn't start with you. Because if it had, you'd still be dead in your sins. No, it started with him. Because that is who he is. God didn't look down the portals of time. And see that that you were, oh, yes, you love him. And so now he's going to love you. That's not what this is talking about. God is the initiator of love, his love for us. It's not built upon anything to do with us. It is built upon the foundation of his love. If there's any time where I should get an amen, it's like right around here. Because it doesn't have anything to do with us. Long before we knew him, he loved us. That's what we see from Scripture. And notice here that it doesn't say that Jesus is the capstone, the foundation of love. There's a delineation between the Son and the Father. And and at times, I I think that we can get this mixed up. I pray that it's not the case for any of us here. But I've heard teaching like this in the past. And it goes something like this. Oh, the God of the Old Testament. 
Yahweh, oh, he is a God of anger, holy wrath. Oh, and the God of the New Testament, that is Jesus. And he is the God of love. And there is some weird distinction that is drawn between the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament when the reality in Scripture is that is never the case. That's why I took us to Jonah first. Because this is who God is. This is our God. This is our Heavenly Father who loves with a love that goes beyond what you and I can fathom or understand. And yes, we see the love of God on full display in what Jesus did. And I'm not saying that that Jesus isn't also perfectly loved. He is. But what is represented for us here, it is God. That God the Father is the beginning point. And second, what do we see also in regards to the love of God? put on full display for us, it is this, the magnitude of his love. You might miss this as as I did at the beginning as I was studying this. Why? Because I wanted to get all the way through 21. And I I wanted to to give us the the whole totality of what is being mentioned here. But notice what it says. It does not say, for God loved the world. That would be a true statement. But that would not be true according to John 3.16 and what is trying to be emphasized by our Lord through the pen of John. No, notice what it says. It says, for God so loved the world. There is an emphatic intensity in this word that comes before what God did loving us. It emphasizes the intensity of our God's great love for us. And notice the verb tense. We can roll right by this and just think, oh yes, he loves me, he loves me, he loves me. No, he loved you, past tense. Before you loved him, before you believed in him, when you were a rebel, when you were his enemy, that's what this is saying. That's how far back our God's love goes for us. The magnitude of God's love, can we truly understand it? Can we truly fathom it? No, it goes beyond our understanding that God in his infiniteness would love us and all that we are. And that the motivation that we are going to see for him giving Jesus to us is what? Love. That, that is the foundation. That is the beginning point. That he is the initiator of this love, but he is, uh, he, this, this love that he has for us is an intense kind of love. It is also an agape love. That is the verb that he's so agaped the world. This is a kind of love that is others focused. It's not a, a, a love that focuses on himself as, as much as he can do that, unlike all of us. This is a love that is others directed. And why does he love? Is it because we're so lovable? 
Is it because there's so much to us? Is it because like when, when, I, when I met my wife, what drove me like a magnet to her was her love for Jesus, her love for the word, the servant's heart that she had and how beautiful she is. All of that was like a magnet. Is, is that how it is with God and all of mankind? That there's some sort of goodness in us that just pulls God to us. No, it's all God. The motivation is on the side of God. Romans 5, 8, but God demonstrates his love for us that while what? While we were yet sinners. This speaks again of the magnitude, the greatness of this love that is on display and declared for us in John three sixteen. There's nothing in humanity that attracted God to spur his love on towards the world and to send a son to pull us in closer. It was all on the part of God. And then what do we see next? What we see next is the scope of his love. How far does this love go? To what extent does it reach? Is it only within the confines of the nation of Israel? As Jonah was thinking that it should be confined and should be contained. Or does this love of God actually extend further? And what we see here is that in the scope of his love, the scope of his love extends to the world. The world. What does the world mean? It means the world. It means all those living in this world. But as I poured into this word and and looked at all the different times that it's used in God's word, it's not so much the the numerical number of, of, of how many billions of people are living on the earth at that particular time, although that would be included. That there's not one that that God doesn't care about and love, but there's more to it. And when this word is used over and over and over again, what is understood is all of sinful humanity. It's Nineveh. It's, it's think about whoever you would think of as the worst person. That is who God is considering when he loves and sends Jesus. Not us in our best possible way. Whatever that looks like for you on your best day. Not those who love God. Not those who are good. It's the complete opposite. It's who we are in ourselves. And do we not see this now in our world? And yet what we see that that God's love is for all of sinful humanity. But I would say in this case, it's a both and. Why? Because who are the recipients truly of, of God's love? You could say in a sense, generally everyone... That was the case for us in Papua New Guinea as we moved into the jungle. As we saw all that God had provided for them, giving them the thatch for their houses to have roofs, giving them all sorts of food that they had in abundance. They didn't have Walmarts, they didn't have Costco, and yet they didn't go hungry. Why? Because God provided for them. 
But is that the same as understanding the immensity and the magnitude of his love? When you trust in him as Savior? No, it's not the same at all. So their understanding of God's love for them just kept growing and growing and growing when when they believed that the Lord Jesus Christ had come and died for them. And they trusted in him as Savior. And then they continued to hear more and more of God's word. And as they heard more and more of God's word, what became even more apparent is, oh man, we had no idea how much God loved us. Isn't that the case for you? That's what's so humbling and and earth-shattering for me as I started considering, man, why wouldn't I say that God's love is something I'm thankful for each and every Thanksgiving? Augustine, Augustine said it like this, God loves each one of us as if there was only one of us to love. But I don't want anybody to flip that upside down and think that what I'm preaching or teaching is universalism. That somehow because he loves all, that all will be saved. No, we, we see that there are, there's a conditional clause, there's a purpose statement in John 3.16 contained in this. That yes, he loves all, but those who what? Believe in him. They are the ones who really understand his love to its fullest. As much as we can fully grasp his love for us. It's expressed in more full clarity to those of us who have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is the only way that we can be saved. And that is the only way that we can truly understand God's love. When we believe in him. So then what do we see in my fourth point? Why does, what does God's love then cause God to do? The demonstration of his love. It causes him to give. To give his son. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. This word give is an expression of generosity. It's, it's like grace. Us not deserving what he gives. Us not asking for this great gift. But God giving it him to us. Because he knew that this is what we needed. How would you answer the question, why does God give Jesus? I would answer that question to satisfy his love. And his justice. And his holiness. And all of his perfections. But you consider it in terms of what we see here in John 3.16. His love. Because he is all loving. And so that is why he gives his son. And notice here, it's not just any person that he gives. He gives his only begotten son. He gives his one of a kind son. He gives his his unique son. Those are all possible translations you could use for this word. What is he speaking of? He's speaking of the triune God. And the relationship that has existed between God the Father and God the Son for all of eternity. 
And what did he do? He gave his son. He gave the son of God up. Over. And in some miraculous way, he was able to take the very wrath, his own wrath, and pour it upon on himself. And he gave him up knowing that that was indeed going to happen. That which goes beyond our imagination and ability to truly understand. That he would do this. That he would desire to do this. All for what? For wicked sinners. For a world that's wrecked. And that has no hope outside of this which makes the gospel, oh, so much glorious and such, such good news, no great news. And so he gives his son and the most miraculous gift that he could have given and the most wonderful display of love given demonstrating for us what love looks like, that love is giving. And no doubt this picture would also, for someone like Nicodemus, bring out the thought of Abraham and Isaac and Abraham being willing to sacrifice his own son Isaac. And, and yet what happens? God says, no. I know now that you were willing to give, to offer your own son on my behalf. So look at, there's a, a ram stuck in the thickets. But even that is a poor picture of what truly happened between God the Father and God the Son that we can't truly grasp. And yet notice the, the promise, and we will hit this much more next week. But where everything goes, goes too. He did all this so that, not that everyone would be believers, not that everyone's going to be saved, but only those who believe in him. Those are the ones that shall not perish, but have eternal life. Notice he just had said this. Jesus had just said this in verse 15. After talking about Moses being lifted up, Lifting up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Verse 15, so that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. John wants us to know categorically, emphatically, that there is no other way to be saved but through believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what he desires for you. That's what all of us here that know the Lord Jesus Christ, that's what we desire for you. That you would believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's why we see John mentioning it so many times already, even though he's just beginning in his gospel. In his opening chapter, chapter 1, verse 12, but as many as received him, to them he gave what? The right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. One fifty, towards the end, remember with Nathaniel. As Nathanael believes that Jesus is the Son of God, and Jesus answered him in 150 and said to him, Because I said to you that I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. The whole reason why John wrote this gospel is so that you might believe. 
that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, is the Messiah, and that believing that you might have life. That's why he keeps going back to believe. Chapter 2, verse 11. After the miracle at Cana with the wedding, changing water into wine. Verse 11, this beginning of his signs he did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples, what? Believed in him. Then after the turning the temple upside down. In verse 22, and they believed the scriptures and the word which Jesus had spoken. Notice what the, the disciples believed and remembered. Later, after Jesus had rose from the dead, they remembered what, what God's word said and what Jesus had said. This is held in major contrast from what we see in verse 23, where others profess to believe, but they don't believe what Jesus says. They don't believe what God's word says. What they believe is what they see with their eyes, and they only believe in Jesus as a miracle man, not as the Messiah. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name, observing his signs, which he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, verse 23, was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men. And and remember, we, we found that that word, not entrusting himself is the same word to believe, not believing in their belief is literally what he's saying. Why? Because it was not true saving faith. That is the whole point of John 3.16. This is a, the gospel in a nutshell. The foundation is God's love. It is God's love that sent Jesus to die, but only those who believe in him will not die, but gain eternal life. The question for us all this morning is, have you believed? Have you trusted in him? Do you understand his wonderful love? I stumbled upon a a great hymn this week in my studies, and and I want to share it with you because there was something about this hymn that I didn't didn't know before. The hymn is by F.M. Lehman, and it's called The Love of God. And most of us know it. At least we know one of the the closing stanza. It goes like this. The love of God is greater far than tongue or pen can ever tell. It goes beyond the highest star and reaches to the lowest hell. The guilty pair bowed down with care. God gave his son to win. His erring child he reconciled and pardoned from his sin. Oh, love of God, how rich and pure, how measureless and strong. It shall forevermore endure the saints and angels song. And then here's the final stanza. And what's so amazing about this is he didn't write this. You see, he used to serve in an insane asylum. And he went to this asylum and he, and he saw this written on a wall. He doesn't even know who wrote it. And he just added this on to the end of the song that the Lord allowed him to write. And this is the part that many of us know. Just listen to this. Speaking of God's love. Could we with ink the ocean fill and were the skies of parchment made? Were every stock on earth a quill and every man a scribe by trade? To write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry. Nor could the scroll contain the whole though stretched from sky to sky. That's the enormity, the immensity the greatness of our great God's love. Could we with ink 
the ocean fill and were the skies of parchment made, were every stock on earth a quill and every man a scribe by trade, to write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. So if we gathered all the people together in the entire world and we gave them each a pen, and it was one of those fancy pens that you had to dip in order to get the ink filled, and, and the ocean was the ink, and all of mankind went and dipped, and then the canvas that they could write God's goodness and God's love was, was the heavens. The heavens couldn't contain it, and the ocean would run dry. That's how deep our God's love is for us. Likewise, I included this so that you can, you can just spend time considering this one verse all week long. This phrase-by-phrase phrase depiction of the greatness of what is presented to us in, these, in this verse, John 3.16. It's, it's in your points to ponder. And I searched and searched, and, and this is anonymous as well. Nobody knows who wrote this, but it's quite well known. And I just want you to consider this. God, that's where we start. The greatest lover. Can anyone compare to the love that God has for us? To who God is in his love. Anyone that you would compare, God exceeds them as the greatest lover. And then the kind of love, so loved the greatest degree. No one can outlove God. His love is too great. God so loved the world, the greatest group. No one loves more than God. As much as you love your kids, God loves them more. As much as you love your neighbors, your family, God loves them more. As missions-minded as you might be, God loves more. As missions-minded as any church might be, God loves more. That he gave. The greatest act. No one puts his love into action as much as God does. That he gave. His only son, the greatest gift. No one gave up as much as God did to show his love. That whoever, the greatest opportunity no one allows others to benefit from their love as much as God does. His grace is extended as a result of his love. And whoever believes the greatest simplicity. All that we bring to the table is believing. We don't bring our works. We don't bring anything else. And yet, what does he do? He gifts us with the most unbelievable promise. And he takes those of us that should die in our sins and spend all of forever in hell being punished for our sins. And instead, what does he do? He swaps that and he gives us his own very righteousness and grants to us instead of us perishing. 
he gives us the greatest promise that we should not perish, that we will not perish. And then gives us the greatest difference. Why? Because instead of perishing, we have eternal life. Have. Notice, we're going to look at this even more so next week. Eternal life doesn't start when you die because you believed in Jesus. Eternal life starts the moment that you believe. And then you are ushered into a right relationship with God. And you now are able to walk with God as Adam and Eve walked with God in the garden. Granted, tainted by sin, tainted by your own sin. But one day that will be exchanged. There will be no more sin. And your body, this flesh that we call our body will be exchanged for a glorified body and there will be no more sin and we will be with him forever in eternal life, the greatest possession. All based because of his great love for those of us who believe, amen? So let me pray us out as, as Pastor Shane and the worship team come up. I pray that this has been an encouragement to you and that you will just continue to mull over the truths seen in John three sixteen. Heavenly Father, you are so good and your love is so great for us. And we do at times, we act like Jonah and we want to tell you what to do. And we don't grasp the significance of your great, great love. So thank you for loving us. Thank you for being the initiator of that love. Thank you for showing us just how intense, incredible, and great your love is. Thank you for the demonstration of your love in sending Jesus to live a perfect life and to die in the place of ruined sinners like us. Lord, thank you for Jesus himself and all that he means to us. And I pray, Lord, that this Thanksgiving, that you would allow our hearts to be overflowing with gratitude and thanksgiving to you for all that you have done. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray.